Hello and welcome to another episode of Casting Views, the podcast that takes a topic each week and as the name suggests, Cast Views. This week, I'm happy. I mean, I'm, all, I'm generally a happy person anyway, but I'm really happy this week because I've got good friend of the show and good friend of mine. I think I can say that, can't I, Antonio? Yeah, absolutely. I consider you... <laughs> Uh, a brother almost <laughs> yes yeah, so, so thank you i've got antonio of the cult worthy the cult worthy classic and rapidly rising and one of my faves now the the milf and me so h- how you been doing doing great man like this was a busy month i bit off way more than i could chew <laughs> but with the three pods bringing the third one back it was on hiatus for a while the cult worthy classic but also, I've been guesting on other shows. I've been doing appearances on live streams. I am judging a film festival coming up in June. I've got trips and concerts planned. And lucky for me, I keep a pretty tight schedule. But in the two years I've been doing this, this month and particularly this week, probably been the most stressful and intimidating I've had so far. Yeah, I, I always did. Well, I used to joke, but semi-joke that you... You know, I used to call you the busiest man in podcasting, but you you literally are. And and yeah, as you said, at time of recording, the classic is back. And yeah, you were last night. I mean, th- this won't go out for a couple of weeks, so this will date the episode, but you're on live stream for The Cure, which was pretty cool. So you were on there with your friend Mikey, weren't you? Yeah, so the live stream for The Cure was put out by uh, Nicholas Haskins, who does Nico's Kitchen podcast. I think it's like their seventh or eighth year doing it. And what they do is a three-day event where they have different uh, independent and professional podcasters come onto the show. They do these hour blocks where they do whatever their show is, maybe add some uh, fun little segments and try and boost donations for cancer research. So last year, their goal was 25,000. They totally beat it. I'm not exactly sure where they're at. We're on the second day of it, but I was on the first day and we almost hit $100 in my segment. So that was a lot of fun, you know, just... Getting on here and, you know, $100 is way more than what I make in in three months doing this podcast off of ads and stuff. The fact that we were able to get $100 in one hour for cancer research, it really made me feel good about the whole thing. And it is an an excellent initiative. It's just been really unfortunate where it comes the last this year and last year, I just couldn't get involved. So I'm hoping next year. Um, if it's around this time, I'm going to try and keep it free because, yeah, I'd I'd love to get involved. Like I said, it's good. And and the thing is, the people that get involved seem like they're genuinely having fun as well. Yeah, it's for a good cause. And a lot of people that would normally not hear you or see you get to hear you and see you. So that's the, another benefit of it is you get more exposure and then you get exposure to other cool people doing podcasting as well. And just quickly on the MILF and me. So as I said, yeah, I really enjoy that show. And you're now starting to get guests on there as well. Aren't you getting some interesting guests appear on there too? Yeah, local guests. We haven't gotten anyone outside of of Utah yet, and that's kind of the point. The point of the MILF and me is we're talking about being in your 40s, single parents. Now, I have a partner. I'm all good. But my co-host, Diana, she's still swimming in the dating cesspool of Salt Lake City, and it's a conservative state, and we're both very liberal-minded, so it's hard for her to find someone to connect with. And just all the funny dating stories that we hear from her and other people it was just the perfect opportunity to make a podcast about it because it's funny. And in doing that, we also learn things about dating and relationship habits across the country, across the world. 
different values of people that they hold dear to them in dating and some people who are just like, you know what? I just want to meet anybody. I could, I'd marry a dog at this point, you know, like <laughs> it's really interesting the things that we've learned. And each week I think gets more and more interesting as we're digging up more and more dating habits and relationship habits uh, in the country for sure. And I think she's great as well. Cause the, she just speaks her mind, doesn't she? She kind of got a way about the way she speaks. Yeah. Uh, for her own benefit and sometimes for her own disastrous relationships. She is a very special person. She deserves a very special kind of guy. And the one thing that we've decided with this podcast is it's the litmus test for people that she dates. If they don't agree with the things that she says or likes the way she presents her thoughts in the podcast, that's the first clue that that's not the guy for her. And it's working beautifully, actually. I think so. Actually, I'm, I'm, I might have to try get for your next appearance. I might have to try and negotiate it to be a MILF and me crossover. We'd love it. We'd love to hear about what dating looks like across the pond. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, with that, yep. So I've not got you on to, but although I could talk to you all night about your shows. Oh. I've got you on for actually an idea of yours, but we'll we'll talk about it after the break. So first, let's hear from Sugar Coated Murder. Hey, Ann Barner. Hey, Karen Devaney. We need a promo. You know, like where we talk about what we do on our podcast. On our Sugar Coated Murder podcast? Like how we love to bake and talk about murder? That's what we need to talk about. There you go. I think we've talked about it. Y'all find us on all your favorite listening apps. Stay sweet. And don't murder. Because if you kill people... We will talk about you. And we're back. So, Antonio, just before we heard that trailer, I was teasing that. Yeah, you, you know, obviously you and I talk a fair bit sort of outside of our pods and you dropped me a number of ideas you suggested would be good for for Mm -hmm. the show. And firstly, they were. And secondly, I thought, well, I've got to have you on for them. Um, So I've, I've got them up on my board here. And the first one we are going to do is bad business decisions which I think is a, is a great idea, and I can't believe I hadn't thought of it. I've done some bad advertising, but yeah, bad business decisions. So guests always go first, so you can start. But also, what was it that attracted you to to this subject? Well, I mean, you asked me if I had any ideas, and when you guys <laughs> did your bad uh, advertisement episode, it kind of opened up uh, my mind of, okay, well, if I was doing this episode with them, how would I do it? And a lot of the things that I picked weren't as much advertising disasters as they were just bad business decisions. You know, everyone's got bad PR. I feel that bad PR, sometimes you can walk away from after a while, like there's a cooling down period. And then you're just right back to business, especially if you've got a product that everyone likes or everyone wants, you know, like Pepsi's decision with the, the, the jumbo jet or whatever the hell that they were trying to not give that kid who won it with Pepsi points or bought the Pepsi points they were able to walk away from that a because everyone's going to keep drinking pepsi that's not going to stop people from drinking pepsi just for example it's not one of mine today but this big controversy with bud light and mm. you know the the communities that are conflicting right now about that yeah a lot of people are saying i'll never drink bud light again and no more anheuser busch i give that like 3 months and then they're going to go right back to whatever they were doing because what they realize is there's so many progressive companies that are making the things that everyone wants. You're going to hear that die down because people aren't going to just stop drinking beer. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's going to happen. But bad business decisions are a different story because most of the things that we're talking about today, with maybe an exception of a couple, you don't walk away from. 
or if there's two parties involved, one party walks away the winner and the other one the loser, right? Yeah, and I know with the couple I've well, actually, if if we get to all three, but definitely the couple I'm going to present, they seem really innocuous decisions. But yeah, the after effects I had for the originating company were brilliant. So, but anyway, guests always go first. So over to you. Okay, well, the first one I'm bringing to the table because I'm a movie guy, I had to start with this one because it is probably one of the worst business decisions in the last 20 years for sure. And that was Blockbuster passing on the opportunity to buy Netflix for $50 million. Just think about that, $50 million. That is like the average budget for a medium romantic comedy theatrically released. Sometimes it's the budget of a strange uh, Stranger Things episode. Like $50 million is not a lot of money when it comes to this kind of production. So to pass up that opportunity of a business takeover and when I say takeover, I mean the business that got passed on literally took over the industry for a good 10, 15 years. You know, it's starting to have a lot more competition now, but it's still pretty high up there on top of the of the list of of just groundbreaking technologies and businesses that pretty much everyone has. Like it's really hard to find someone that doesn't have a Netflix subscription or bounces in and out of one when the movies or shows that they like pop on and blockbuster passed on the deal see i didn't realize they had the opportunity to purchase them yeah so you know netflix started early early 2000s as a mail to order dvd service i was early in like in that service right out of the gates because i live in a very conservative state we have a few mom and pop video stores back in the day, right? And then we have Blockbusters and we had what's called Hollywood Videos. Those were like the two big chains. And Redbox hadn't come out yet. Eventually, that was kind of something similar. It was like a, a DVD vending machine. McDonald's and 7-Elevens were the first ones to kind of put those in their parking lots and people would go rent a, a Redbox. But the problem with Utah is Utah has a lot of uh, rules when it comes to, let's say, profanity, ratings, adult content. There's a lot of restriction and there's a lot of censorship in Utah. So, for example, you could not rent. uh, There's no beaded curtain video rooms in Utah back in the day in video stores. So even softcore pornography or erotic artistic cinema was not allowed in brick-and-mortar video stores. But you could rent them off of Netflix. And at the time, there was there was no governor on that through state legislatures that would block you from doing that. So there were a lot of films that I'd always wanted to see that never played on cable. This was before the days of streaming. There was pay-per-view and stuff like that, but you had to have the satellite dish or the TiVo. A lot of families couldn't afford that. So... I was able to finally watch movies I knew were out there and I couldn't get my hands on by renting them off of Netflix and groundbreaking, life-changing. Of course, once that started happening, people just stopped going to Blockbuster, you know? Why would you go rent a movie at Blockbuster for twice the price of a Netflix movie? You have to return it in three days or you get all these fines or fees. If you lose it, you have to pay the $80 to $100 that they paid for the tape. Like, there was a lot of of red tape to go through for a blockbuster 
subscription and, and to rent videos. And if you looked too young, they wouldn't rent for you. One of the things I think Blockbuster realized was they had to get in on this game early, right? They, they didn't think of Netflix as a threat, but they saw the, let's say, opportunity in their business structure. So before Netflix even was getting big, they started doing the same thing where you could, okay, how about you, instead of paying per video, right? You pay a monthly subscription to Blockbuster and you can get mail order DVDs just like Netflix, but you can also use that subscription in the store. And you can also buy and sell your DVDs and movies online. Like it had a really good business model to do that. But what happened was they got a new CEO about two years before this Netflix deal. He had no experience in the rental agency. He was like a retail guy. He was selling clothing and, and, and manufacturing goods. So when they brought him on, uh, his name was John Antiaco. He started trying to turn Blockbuster into a retail business more than a rental business, right? He's like, okay, well, we're going to put Blockbuster shirts and toys and clothes and more concessions and more stuff in these stores. And that's going to start driving up our margin and make our bottom line better. He did not see a future in this whole mail order DVD. And that was kind of like where things started going down for Blockbuster. They weren't seeing returns. So Netflix comes along because people hadn't really jumped on this idea yet, right? Netflix was struggling, not because of the movies, but because of the shipping, you know, that's you're shipping DVDs all over the country and shipping's expensive. And that was eating a huge part of their budget. They weren't doing streaming yet. So they were just bleeding money, but they knew that their thing worked. So what they were trying to do is get a meeting with Blockbuster to buy the company and you know, let's say we'll run your online model is what they said. We'll run your DVD shipping because we know how it works. We're doing a great job with it. You guys finance us and we'll be one big company. And I think Blockbuster thought that was such a slap in the face of an offer. They said, okay, this is what we'll do. We'll give you $50 million for your company, but you have to come in person to Dallas, Texas in the next 24 hours to sign the <laughs> Wow. And at the time, these guys were based in Seattle. Like, okay, well, how are we going to get there in 24 hours? So the guy that was in charge, Reed Hastings, he chartered a plane, which turned out to be Vanna White's plane, her private jet. Okay. He flew to Dallas, and right at the zero hour of getting into this meeting to say, okay, we're going to sell, he just immediately saw that they were really just kind of pushing him to you know, make a fool out of him. It was a bullying mm -hmm. move. And he just didn't like the vibe. He's like, you know what? I think we're going to just take our risks and be on our own. You could have you bought us over the phone, but instead you make us jump through hoops. You make us run out here. And to, the fact that you're only offering us $50 million with zero negotiation, we're going to risk it. And Blockbuster thought they won. They're like, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, we made you jump through hoops. Just know that we're the powerful guys and we made you do this. But within a year after that decision, all of a sudden Netflix takes off. They announce they're going to start doing streaming online through Xbox and Roku and the early streaming devices. And Blockbuster was way too far behind to even catch up. 
and that was pretty much death nail and blockbuster yeah and that's the problem isn't it is just the catch-up is too much um if you make a big mistake like that and well okay now we've got so many streaming platforms but i think netflix is still the word that people use for streaming a lot of people will say oh you know oh is it on netflix but they often mean streaming it's, it's become that word now what blockbuster potentially could have capitalized on with that was a bit more of the social element at first you know you, you'd go in the store you the, the one that was in the town next over to us towards the end they did try to diversify a bit. So they had video games and you could trade them in. And I think you could even rent them. So it was becoming a wider appeal. And the way they laid the store out, there was a bit more of a social vibe to it. But by that point, as you said, it was too late because Netflix then. And we, we had another one here called Love Film, um, mm-hmm. which I think is then was bought by Amazon. That was just becoming more and more popular because, yeah, like you said, you, you didn't. Why would you go to the store to be disappointed to find out they didn't have the rental you wanted? Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing. I have a really good friend that was a store manager of a Blockbuster at the time this was happening. And he knew that things were going bad when all of a sudden they started making it mandatory for employees to have a quota of selling the subscription plans to Blockbuster's mail DVD service right. in order to keep their job. So he's like, one day I was on this, you know, store managers meeting and they said okay starting on monday i think they called them uh crew members or something like that had a quota of selling five of these subscriptions per shift if they wanted to keep their job because they knew that things were struggling so instead of really focusing on the advertising and the quality of the the service of this mail order service that blockbuster was trying to push Instead of focusing on that and gaining customer trust and loyalty, what they did is they started bullying their sales force and their crew to to sell this. And I've worked in retail industries before where this was a a very similar method used. You got to sell our subscription plan. You've got to sell our membership card. You got to sell our discount card. It becomes part of your job description. And it proved that the team members weren't behind it because now their jobs are being threatened to sell this thing that wasn't as good as a deal as Netflix. And their job was a part of it. Therefore, they weren't as enthusiastic about getting customers excited for it. So customers didn't want it, you know? And then one of the things, too, that also took a huge bite out of Blockbuster's bottom line is Blockbuster started saying, okay, well, no more late fees. Not realizing that late fees were one of the major margin drivers for their industry, that extra uh-huh. 2 or $3 or rental that someone would forget to take it or yeah. it got lost in the minivan, that was a huge part of their margin. So trying to get more customers by saying, okay, no more late fees. Well, then people just stopped bringing their movies back. <laughs> so they couldn't rent movies out. Exactly, yeah. And then there was no more late <laughs> fee charges. Like so many bad oh, business dear. decisions in this particular situation. <laughs> And and the irony is now is that on Netflix you've got a series made about Blockbuster, haven't you? So that well, that's kind of a slap in the face, right? Yeah. You know that that last Blockbuster, which is which was a franchise uh, out in Bend, Oregon, and there's a documentary about it that was on Netflix that was just fantastic about these the last standing Blockbuster that they haven't had any software updates since 2007 or something. You know, <laughs> it's all their old stuff, but. We've been seeing little signs that Blockbuster is coming back in one way or another. They haven't really said what it is. 
I think right now the collectors, the nostalgic people, the boutique people, I, th- I see video and rental coming back in small kind of gimmicky ways that people are really into. I would buy into it 100%. I don't think it's trying to corner the market like it did back in the, the 90s and the early 2000s. But if someone can get that name and bring it back like a small little brick and mortar service that wasn't as focused on taking over the industry, but rather playing to the nostalgia of people like you and me. It doesn't sound like a bad little business idea. No, and as you said, I've noticed sort of over the last year, maybe 18 months, the Blockbuster Twitter account has kind of kicked into life again and and is having a bit of fun with other accounts. And and as as you said, and as as I've said a number of times on my, uh, my show, physical is really coming back, physical media, especially in the music world. And you've said a number of times that it's a whole boutique experience of films and you know the the collectible uh, dvd and blu-ray films there's a home for that i mean here in the uk we probably i don't think we've got any more like a dedicated go-to film place a lot of the shops we've got um a big music store which will do yeah the the music cds dvds blu-rays but i i wouldn't be able to name you if there was a go-to place for for collectible films or for that film experience for the collector anyway so right. like I said, absolutely, there's a gap there. You know, and one of the things, too, that I think if they were smart is being really big on the retail side of it, where let's say I still have in my collection VHS and DVDs and maybe a couple Blu-rays because Blu-ray was still pretty young when this whole thing went down that still have the Blockbuster exclusive sticker on it. You know, one okay. of the things that they were able to do is they were able to work with studios where they would get let's say exclusive special content, whether it was a trailer or a a commentary or some kind of behind the scene featurette that was only available on that blockbuster edition. For example, my grindhouse, um, I have the Blu-ray now, of course, but I do have the grindhouse uh, planet terror and death proof double feature. And there were blockbusters exclusives of those. That was the first way that you could actually watch all the extra trailers and special features on a physical media version of those films was only through the blockbuster exclusive until, you know, 20 years later, the Blu-ray has it all, but they had a lot of cool stuff like that. So maybe if they kind of played to the boutique people, let's say blockbuster has its own boutique label. Yeah. yeah. That's a brilliant strategy for them to start attacking. So like I said, they'll never be the King again because of this disastrous business decision. But they could capitalize on that nostalgia element because, as I said, there are so many streaming services now if, if they want to go into streaming world or even in the if they wanted to, as you said, do the physical side. The nostalgia element will be their, their hook at the start. Now, interesting one. And also, I think I'm sure I only saw that this week or last week. The Netflix mail order uh, side was actually still running, I think. I think it's only just closing down now. or they're just They just closed it down like two or three weeks ago, yeah. It's amazing, really. I mean, I'm sure they probably weren't doing much business, but yeah, that that ran and ran as well, didn't it? One of the biggest reasons why they did that was because they were, for a while, the largest owner of these out-of-print and collectible versions of movies. And even though you just got it in a little paper envelope, a lot of the stuff's out of print and not available anymore. So if you were able to get something that was out of print and you didn't care about the box or the cover art, you just wanted the film, people were just keeping it no one's making it anymore. So being able to replenish your inventory, that was one of the main driving forces for them to shut that off. All right, well, 
Thank you for that one. Yep, so for my first one, I'm sticking with a theme that I like, and it's music, and it's the Beatles. I'm not sure if you or the listeners are aware, but Decca Records had the chance to sign the Beatles right at the start, but they turned them down, unbelievably. I knew about this. Yeah, well, let me take you back to 1961, 1962. So the Beatles had literally just formed. So this was actually when they still had Pete Best rather than Ringo Starr. And uh, their manager, Brian Epstein, had tried to to get them a record deal for a while. I think they'd spoken to Columbia, HMV and Phillips, and all of them, I think, had turned them down. At the start of December 1961, they met with the Decca A&R exec. He travelled up to Liverpool to see them perform at the Cavern Club and was impressed enough to say, you know, come down to to London and we'll give you a test, uh, test recording. That was uh, scheduled for... 1st of January 1962 so again another little thing I didn't know was now that's a bank holiday so we don't work that day but back then it wasn't a thing so they had to they had to get down there for New Year's Day 1962 so a little fun and a little sort of fun sighting about just how it was just a generally tragic day for all those involved in the deal so they had their friend and I think at the time he became the, or later on, he became the Apple Corps uh, manager, but Neil Aspinall, he drove them down to London, got lost on the way and a trip that probably should have taken four or five hours, took 10 hours. They got to London at 10 o'clock, just in time as John Lennon describes it, to see all the drunkards jumping in Trafalgar Square Fountain. So, so it kind of started off good for them, or, or sorry, started <laughs> off bad for them and just then proceeded to get worse. So 1st of January, ticks over. You've got John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Pete Best arrive at Decca Studios for their test. However, the A&R guy was late because he was suffering from a hangover from a New Year's Eve party the night before and was also suffering because he was in a car crash three days before, so he had cuts and bruises. So that delayed the audition too. Um, So again, all these good omens so far. Now, normally they say what happens with one of these... Uh, test procedures is they normally record two or five songs but the Beatles for the Beatles they they actually made them record 15 songs so that that took over a whole day and 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 what people were sort of surmising by that was they were thinking if they were then going to be signed that that would have been their debut album because 15 songs is pretty much an LP right but after hearing them allegedly Dick Rowe who I think was another A&R guy there turned around they said no basically and said to the Beatles manager guitar groups are on their way out Mr Epstein so <laughs> that was... <laughs> now now the funny thing is there's all these you know legends and myths and things like that he's always denied saying that but in Brian Epstein's autobiography he did quote him so you know for someone to be that confident yeah Decker turned down the Beatles they went on to sign Brian Paul and the Tremolos and they said they did that because they were local and there was less travel expenses. So they were going to save a bit of money hiring them. And yeah, in, and then what happened then? Epstein then went back to EMI, who was uh, being managed by George Martin then, ironically. And yeah, he signed them to their Parlophone record and, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, just as a as a thing, just to reiterate the mistake so I was having a look um, beforehand at the official charts.com and Brian Paul and the Tremolos had been artists in their own right and they've had a lot of success sort of in and around themselves. But as, as a group together, they had one UK number one as opposed to the 17 by the Beatles. 
they had four UK top 10s and the Beatles had 28. And let's say in the top 10, they had 22 weeks uh, in the top 10 with their singles, whereas the Beatles had 188. I'm sure there's also, there's always been a similar sort of thing in film and, and everything like that. And, and I guess your your example was very similar, but you never know at the time because people did say the Beatles probably were a little raw then because they were, they were going to be young, right? This was 62. And like I said, Ringo wasn't even there then. But yeah, I mean, you must look back and think, yeah, what a mistake, right? Yeah, I mean, they were especially rough and ready because these are like their just barely after their Hamburg days, right? Where they were yes, yeah. still wearing all leather and they were just playing kind of loud and raw on these seedy nightclubs. Yeah, like it wasn't the aesthetic that you were seeing in these kind of young pop groups or uh, just a few years later it was all the skiffle groups, you know, that were popular at the time. So I, I can see it. I can see how it's kind of a risk, but it really does set the stage for mistakes like that to not be made ever since, you know, like if anything, that's the reason why we probably get a lot of substandard music because people were always thinking they were finding the next Beatles and just releasing them willy nilly. If anything, it kind of screwed musicians for the next 20 years <laughs> you know, because they were going to grab at any contract that. they could get, you know? Yeah. hadn't thought that. And, and again, and, and when I was writing this, I've, I've I thought it was a bit harsh because, as I said, you know, some other labels had obviously turned them down. And I think that why maybe Decca Records was so, is so um, probably infamous is I think mainly because of the whole story they that they did get them to form 15 songs. And it's this disputed line about, yeah, guitar music is on the way out. Now, yeah, as you said, you don't know necessarily what you've got because you've got a band at the start of their career. You don't know what they're going to become, right? Right. But yeah, yeah, I never thought about, as you said, yeah, now you just sign everything up. I mean, you know me, I kind of love anything around the Beatles. I mean, this is, I think this is probably the third time I've mentioned them or, or featured them in some sort of story on, on my pod. And I think all the stories that come out from them, that yeah, I, I just think the guy, I wonder sort of how many nights he went home and cried into his cup of tea at night after, after yeah, not, not getting him to sign on his contract. Yeah, that's my first one. You know, I wanted to add one little thing, too, about that was the same time, wasn't there still a ban on rock and roll and certain blues music on the BBC during that point of the 60s? Because I remember up until the late 60s, there was a ban on it. And that's where like all the pirate radio ships that were broadcasting rock and roll music off the coast were involved. So that also maybe plays a little bit into it where they didn't have the... They weren't able to trace how popular bands were based off of radio play with the teenagers and the listeners of the day. It was still, if you wanted these albums, you had to go and listen to it in the store or see them live and then buy the album because they didn't have as much radio play after that. And then once that ended, I mean, again, I think that's why the Beatles and the Stones and the British invasion of the U.S. was so huge when it was because we didn't have that here. The exposure was huge to any band. So... Again, like I think a lot of their success was also based off of how U.S. listeners responded to it. Yeah, and and actually what you just said then has just nudged my memory for one final thing on this is that, so yeah, so they signed Brian Paul and the Tremolos and the irony was they kind of hit the big time after the Beatles had kicked off the whole Mersey Beat thing. So it, it took the Beatles to form a sign to another label, start this new wave of music, and then they became famous as part of that and one of their hits was actually covering 
Twist and Shout, which the Beatles had done four months earlier, but they they right. believe that they were well, they said they were covering it long before the Beatles released it. So yeah, I just find there's a, a, a that that's another interesting little wrinkle where you know they they weren't as good as the Beatles, but it took the Beatles to go somewhere else prove themselves start off this new mini invasion and mini wave of music and then yeah that's that's what kick-started these other bands and like you said as you were saying probably made it more acceptable uh, to the mainstream yeah that's a good one sorry decca all right my next one have you ever heard of canon films yes yeah i mean we talk about canon films a lot here in the states especially when we're talking about cult films and guilty pleasure films of the 80s and early 90s there's a deep, deep, deep history to Canon Films. It had several different owners and, and people who ran the studio. But where most people know about Canon Films is the era from like 1979 to 1988, 89. Like this 9, 10 year era where it was run by these two Israeli cousins, Yoram Globus and Menachem Golan. They were filmmakers in Israel. They had a lot of big hits and they were known to make films very quickly. They were making them very cheap. And for what they were making, there was actually a lot of audience response. Maybe not critical response, but a lot of audience response. And they saw this massive wave of success from 1981 to, let's say, 1986. They were really kind of masters of their craft, making these low-budget, easily made, quickly churned out B-movies, action movies, ninja movies, silly comedies, some erotic films. They covered all the gambits. And it was the perfect time, too, because there were still drive-in theaters. There were still, uh, let's say, grindhouse theaters. Blockbusters were still kind of a new concept. You know, 83, 84 is when blockbusters started really coming out. So studios were trying to make these big-budget blockbusters, spending a lot of money, not necessarily getting returns back. But you would need films to fill these multiplexes with, or let's say foreign markets. And these two guys knew exactly how to do that. Now, they had a really genius method. They would create advertising campaigns for films that didn't exist yet, right? Let's say Chuck Norris, Charles Bronson, uh, Michael Dudikoff, people kind of like in that B-movie you know, celebrity yeah. realm. They would start creating ideas, movie pitches, concepts, posters, cover art for films that hadn't even been written yet, films that hadn't even been greenlit yet. And whenever they would go to, let's say, a film festival or a premiere or a industry meeting, they would bring these posters and bring these spec sheets and do pre-sales for investors before the thing had even been written yet. They'd go to these guys who had a lot of money, mostly oil guys or finance guys from other countries and be like, okay, so this movie is going to be a Vietnam epic starring Charles Bronson. Here is the poster. Here's a movie about a Kung Fu master with Chuck Norris. Here's the poster. We need $50 million to make it. We guarantee you we'll double your money back. And they'd sell a lot of this stuff, but they would take that money. And instead of making the picture that they sold, they'd make four pictures with that money. Right. So like <laughs> they'd have like, okay, we're going to, we're going to have like a, a big chunk of money for this one. And then we're going to take this 10 million and make five, $2 million budget movies. Yeah. And it worked. 
for a good solid six, seven years, they were just doing movie after movie. And here's the thing. Even if they weren't critically renowned, people liked these movies. And hey, if you made a $2 million movie and it made $10 million, okay, that maybe not be breaking the bank, but guess what? $10 million just made you four more movies, right? <laughs> Where things started to get sticky for these guys is they really let their ego and their desire to be big Hollywood players get in the way. So what they started doing is breaking their formula of making these lower budget B-movie celebrity starring pictures. They wanted big game. And there was no bigger game in the 80s than Sylvester Stallone. So what they were doing is they were offering Stallone. And Stallone is like, you guys make shit movies. I don't want any part of it. Okay, well, how about we pay you $12 million, which at the time would have been the largest amount of money ever paid to an actor for a role, to make a film called Over the Top, where okay. he's a truck-driving arm wrestler who's <laughs> trying to build a relationship with his, his son, and then Ben Gazzara plays the son's granddad who's trying to chase him. I love the movie, but it's ridiculous. There's no denying that it's ridiculous. But they paid Stallone that much money. Now, they couldn't afford it. So what they had to do is they had to sell more bullshit, right? They had to sell more movies that weren't real, that they didn't exist, just so they could pay Stallone that money and then still have money to make the movie and make all the other movies that they've already promised people they're going to sell. To me, that's the, the straw that broke the camel's back because they just kept trying to double down on these big licenses. There was a moment in time where Canon owned the rights to Marvel movies. So oh, really? they made, wow. they, they, they were going to make a Captain America. They were going to make an Incredible Hulk. They were going to make, and there's poster art for it, James Cameron's Spider-Man. James Cameron wow. wanted to make a Spider-Man in 1986 starring Michael Bean as Peter Parker. There was a script for it. There was, there was concept art. Jeez, yeah. What really crashed it was in 1987, they got their hands on the rights for Masters of the Universe, you know, He-Man. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, He-Man had stopped being popular for almost two or three years. Like, the toy line kind of faded out in 1985. They had all this money set aside for He-Man, but they kept just eating away at it for these other projects trying to pay these big actors this money they couldn't afford because they want to be Hollywood players. They're loaned out, they're depleted, and they didn't even have an ending for Masters of the Universe. They shot it in a garage really quickly. Like That's kind of the death nail of Canon Pictures is they try to climb too big into a world that they didn't understand and they really shouldn't have been playing in, but they didn't want to like save face and say, hey, we're just B-movie guys. We're going to keep doing this. Instead, they kept pushing higher and higher. And I really feel, and a lot of people agree, that it was Sylvester Stallone's massive paydays that he made for Over the Top and Cobra that really kind of broke their system. And eventually, everything collapsed. Ah, so was Cobra one of theirs as well then? Yeah. So, yeah, so did they not then do too well at, at the box office in terms of thinking what they pulled in? See, this is where Stallone didn't really care because both movies were like critically torn apart. And yes, they made some money, but like I said, it wasn't enough money to cover all of the other okay, okay. Uh, financial responsibilities they had to other projects. And really all Stallone was doing was kind of just getting that money for him so he could start kind of 
funding his own passion projects. You know, this is a time where he had a huge ego. He was kicking directors off of set. He was kicking writers off projects and kind of rewriting the movies himself. Cobra is a total vanity project for him. It started off as something completely different and he kind of made it his own thing. And it's got its, it's got its appreciators. Like I'm an appreciator of it, but you can't really call it a great movie, you know, but again, it was, it was his chance to, to get paid well for vanity projects. Yeah. I mean, I like you, I do like over the top. I think it's a fun, fun little film. Yeah, it's fun. So work Canon then, similar to is it what is it now is it like asylum no see canon really wanted to be original with its with its content yes they would take a premise so for example when indiana jones came out they put out a string of movies with richard chamberlain called uh king solomon's mine and uh the alan quartermain films you know they're essentially low budget b movie versions of, of raiders of the lost ark but they weren't intentionally trying to copy that marketing per se. You know, they would say that is something that we're going to use to fund these other original and creative projects. So yeah, they would play this game where they would, you know, kind of cater to what they thought audiences wanted with the intention of getting that money to make more creative and heartfelt projects, you know, because they were, Menahem Golan was a really good filmmaker. He was a good director. You know, the movies might not have been great. The stories might not have been great, but he definitely had a great eye for the camera and had a really good sense of pacing. Uh, it's funny, if you go back and watch some of his older films, people laugh at them, I laugh at them, but making movies isn't easy. And he made some pretty decent movies aesthetically, even if they never really turned out to be classics, you know? But fair play to them, because like you said, they were trying to do their best and they were getting big names involved as well. It's just obviously... um financing is is a tricky subject right or is a tricky area it is and it's not that they were uh exuberant in their personal spending uh, they are also known for being very cheap <laughs> in their personal lives they didn't take limos they took taxi cabs you know they didn't have fancy offices they would rent out you know low-grade office space in other buildings they would literally go get leftovers from other people's catering and bring it to their studio and use that as craft services for their filmmakers. Like they were trying to pinch pennies everywhere they could because they wanted every dollar made to go into their projects. I respect the hell out of that because yeah. we do see a lot of just exuberant corporate waste when it comes to finances. I was talking about this with some local filmmakers the other day in studio where one lunch for the show Yellowstone that was filmed here. Mm -hmm. One lunch that was catered for the crew was probably $20,000 for one wow. lunch. And that would have financed their entire indie project they yeah. were working on at a time. That's what I'm talking about, where there are things that are just exuberant spending. And these guys avoided that because they wanted all the money to go back into their projects. And the last line from me on this, and it's going to be a bad pun. Are we saying over the top, put them under? <laughs> yeah okay right yeah i'll get my coat as they say my next one is gonna get again it's gonna be another kind of passion of mine it's in the gaming world and it's nintendo and sony i love it when you told me this i was so excited 
So I'm going to take you a little bit further forward now. So it's 91 from my last one. So we're jumping forward 30 years. So yeah, Nintendo were making a presentation at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. And as part of that, they were going to announce a deal that they'd done with Sony of America to produce a new console. Now, what is quite astounding is when they're up on the stage, they in fact announced that they'd struck a deal with Philips who were a Dutch uh, electronics manufacturer and Sony's biggest rival at the time, to produce an add-on device for the Nintendo games players. So, yeah, basically, they wanted to get away from cartridge-based games and use optical discs. And Sony was sitting there in the audience thinking that we've we've struck the deal and they're going to announce this deal with us, but instead they hear that it's another company. Sony had already announced, actually, that they'd got an arrangement with Nintendo under which Sony would introduce a machine called the Game Player. As they said, that it wasn't immediately clear to them what was happening, especially after Nintendo had gone after Sony quite aggressively over the years to work with them to get these compact discs instead of cartridges. So, yeah, so basically Sony's executives turned up. They they were going to hear this new partnership announced and then it was Philips and the then president of Sony, Olaf Olafsson, heard Hiroshi Yamauchi of Nintendo announce on stage that Nintendo would be working with Philips and he said, this is the first we've heard of it, we view this as a serious matter. Now, what people are saying is that it might have been something like contract law or the, or the culture in, in Japan because I think they said it made it hard for them to say they that they've reneged on a contract or something, which could have led to to some of the confusion. But yeah, but ultimately, instead of going to Sony and, and saying, because I think what Sony wanted to do was Sony wanted to then make games directly for the console without buying them from Nintendo. But Nintendo saw that as an aggressive move from Sony and they wanted to own everything. So right. you think, yeah, instead of trying to work out a deal, they just went seemingly behind the back and went to a different company altogether i mean i think the thing that comes out of this is that i think sony was so angry and so annoyed that they then took the technology that they developed to create their own uh, console which was called the playstation i'm not sure if you've heard of that (laughs) i've actually got a lot more on this but i'll let you finish your part yeah i I knew you did because i couldn't find it so i can't wait to hear that yeah basically Sony released a PlayStation and it was an instant sensation. It outsold its only competitor at the time, which was the Sega Saturn. And yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen Nintendo. I mean, obviously Nintendo are back now, but Nintendo went through a bit of a kind of a a low low period. But yeah, you know, Sony have sold over 100 million PlayStations worldwide in its lifetime. I just find this fascinating because you, you almost wonder what they could have done like we were saying earlier if your first one what blockbuster and netflix could have done together you think what sony and nintendo could have done together however we've probably got the best of both worlds now because nintendo forged their own path they're still making their games and consoles we've got the switch we get we've got playstation 5 now Uh, sony keep innovating there but i just think it's for me this story is got two two elements one is the fact that yeah, Nintendo basically seemingly screwed over uh, Sony and chucked them aside for Philips. And the second is the fact that Sony weren't aware. Now, I've found a line that I had here. Some have suggested that the reason they banded them and went off with another competitor without telling them is that some say it might have been chalked up to the cultural differences and Japanese contract law that no one at Nintendo felt obligated to inform Sony. So I 
it's those two elements. So one, you've got the decision itself and two, you've got how it was delivered. So if it isn't, this could be a film. I mean, we've seen Tetris, we've seen Blackberry come out, the, is it the Nikes? This this feels like this alone could be its film because you've got the build-up, you've got the friendship, the build-up, you've got the treachery and then you've got the outcome. So yeah, I'll give you Nintendo and Sony, Antonio. There's some things that are at play that weren't really covered in that in that research and that is that sony was very adamant about owning its own technology as well and they wanted their addition to be a peripheral because they didn't want to blend their technology with nintendo in the same console nintendo was kind of shy about this because sega had been doing peripherals for a minute and none of them were successful they had the Sega CD, they had the Sega uh, 32X, they had a game, uh, what's it, not the Game Boy, what was their version, the Game, game Gear. Gear. Yeah. They had a Game Gear peripheral that you could play the Game Gear games, and it was a lot of money going into this, and it's kind of what put Sega under. You know, like By the time Sega released the Saturn, PlayStation and 64 were already at the top of the game, and by the time Sega released uh, Dreamcast, which was originally called the Dolphin, it was done. It was over. Sega was done as a, as a console maker. So that's one of the biggest problems with that is that Sony is very big about owning their own technology. So they wanted it to be a peripheral for whatever they wanted to do to add to Nintendo's thing. And that's one of the big reasons, too, why Nintendo was like, no, we're going to just keep doing cartridges. And also, Sony didn't want to put a regulation on what kind of games could be released or developed. So they wanted to be able to reach the mature audiences as well. People that wanted to play games like, let's say, Mortal Kombat or eventually the Grand Theft Auto games. They wanted to reach that larger audience where Nintendo, to this day, are still the family console. They don't allow too many of these uh, mature rated games onto their console. So those are another two big things. Now, the part that I wanted to talk about that was really (laughs) exciting is I'm a huge Final Fantasy guy. And Final Fantasy VII is kind of the game that made the PlayStation. You know, they were they were killing it right out of the gate with some of their initial launches. But in 97, when Final Fantasy VII came out, it was groundbreaking in its appearance, in its technology. Even though it was only 32-bit CD, not 64-bit cartridge, you know, it could have potentially maybe looked better on a console like, 64 but it wouldn't have been as immersive it was four discs full of orchestrated music and cutscenes, and a lot of that would not have been able to be done in the cartridge however there was a mod there was a, a a development kit put out for this when they started developing games for the original nintendo sony playstation collaboration and it wasn't until gosh decades later that people started finding some of this concept art and concept gameplay for what would have been nintendo's version of final fantasy 7 and it played very straightforward it was actually kind of based on the engine for the final fantasy 6 which was uh, released as three here in in the states but it was done with a 3d field aspect like final fantasy 7 was it had a lot better music it was really focused on polygonal technology like Star Fox was and it's just really cool all there are are just battle scenes there is no like FMV. There is no uh, story as to say. It was just more like character development concept art. But it's really fascinating to see what that game would have looked like on that original console had it actually come out. 
And a lot of people say that it's probably one of the most famous and infamous lost games of a video game history is is that what would have been final fantasy 7 for the nintendo playstation collaboration yeah that, that's interesting you see because i remember you mentioned that to me and i couldn't see much and i had never heard that before now one of the things i had seen is allegedly there was some development also for the uh, nintendo 64 but so I don't know if that's kind of what you alluded to. But yeah, I, I, that's the only thing I picked up. Yeah, that's that's another fascinating thing because yeah, would we have had the the Final Fantasy that we we would have had now? Well, exactly, and that's that's why it went to PlayStation because Square signed with Sony, not Nintendo. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that's why it went over there. That's why there was no 64-bit Final Fantasy game. Yeah. Because they signed an exclusive deal with Sony when that deal fell apart, so it all lines up together. <laughs> uh, well, like I said, I think I think that's uh, I think this should be a film. So if anyone's listening, make it so. <laughs> yeah, it definitely could be. Uh, there was a great documentary on. I want to say it was either on Hulu or Tubi about Sega, the rise and fall of Sega. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they that could have been a film on its own too, because that story was crazy. And they do cover some of this because you know. There was industrial espionage going on from Sega, and they knew about this deal falling apart, and that's why they pushed the Saturn, because they weren't sure if Nintendo or Sony could actually pull off the 64 and the PlayStation, so they rushed the Saturn out there so there would be a right. Sega console in the market. You see, this this has to be... You see, this has got all the perfect ingredients for a thriller. <laughs> it really <laughs> does, man. Like, when you look at movies like The Founder and, like you said, this Nike Air and the Blackberry, this yeah. is the perfect story for someone to come out and put a, a dramatization to. Excellent. But mostly for us, like, older millennials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's the final fantasy? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you have anything else? Um, you know, I'm not going to go into super detail of it. Uh, let's just call it an honorable mention, and yeah. that is uh, the story of the DeLorean and John DeLorean. You know, in, in a nutshell, this was a guy who, again, when we talk about ego ruining lives, he was a, a designer of cars, and he was the youngest CEO of both Pontiac and Chevrolet in his early 40s. Stunningly handsome guy, suave, had everything he ever wanted, and it just wasn't enough. You know, he pulled like a, an Alexander the Great kind of thing, left these two highly prestigious jobs to form his own motor company, DMC, which gave us the DeLorean, which was the only car to ever be produced by this company. And because it was such an ego-boosting thing, the car itself wasn't very good. It only had like 120 horsepower. It was made of stainless steel. It was super heavy. It didn't handle well. It was more of like a status symbol than it was an actual good car. And because he believed it in so much and he put all of his money into it, he ran out of friends and investors for it because they were just losing money hand over foot that eventually he got caught by the FBI trying to make a cocaine deal to make $24 million to save his company. And he got busted. So the, the bad decision there was you could have been the top of the world in your industry if you'd stayed with Pontiac, if you'd stayed with Chevrolet, kept innovating, kept making vehicles for the masses instead of this, this glamorous vehicle that not many people wanted at the time. Now, everyone wants yeah. one because it's a collector's item. Yeah. But the funny thing about Back to the Future is they were making a joke out of the DeLorean. Like the DeLorean wasn't supposed to be a cool car 
Marty McFly specifically says, you made a time machine out of a DeLorean? Because back then it was a joke. But now generations watching this film and not understanding the the meaning of the joke just think it's a really cool car, you know? Yeah, and it kind of looks, you know, looking at it now from a film in the past, you can imagine they've, they've chosen it because it looks fairly futuristic, you know, with the the, right. the wing doors. All wings and... Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's Rectangle. brilliant in the sense of, yeah, you know, just what a difference a few years and and a sort of multi-million budget film will do for you right so right <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised if we saw a delorean 2 in the next few years <laughs> that a bunch of hipsters and and you know millennials want for their collection right well you know i'm not gonna do mine i'm gonna leave it there so i'm gonna say thank you antonio because you bought some cracking ones and enhanced my last one so thank you for that before you go uh, do you want to is anything you want to plug or your socials or anything you want to say? Oh yeah. I mean, always a pleasure, Dan. I love being on your show. I love it when you're on mine. I'm so glad that we are as close as we are. And, you know, we're going to have you on again very soon to talk about British gangster films. I'm excited about that Can't one. And <laughs> yeah. But for listeners who haven't found my show yet, that Dan has been on several times now, it's the cult worthy cinema podcast. We also have the Cultworthy Classic and then my kind of relationship comedy show, The Milf and Me. You can find those all on thecultworthy.com or pretty much on any social media site like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, just under The Cultworthy or The Milf and Me. Cheers, Antonio. And if you'll allow me, just say some nice words about your pod again. But yeah, if, you, if you're not listening, it was actually when I, because um, you recently hit your 100 episode, didn't you? And yeah. it was when I was thinking what to say. And yeah, if you don't listen, it's... What I really like about Antonio and his show is that it really does try to to highlight. It brings back some of these films that you may not have even heard of, let alone seen. So, you know, like you keep saying, there are a lot of pods that do the modern movies and, and that's great. But you're showing these love and trying to get some love and some attention paid to some of these cult classics or some, like you said, some may, may have slept on for years. So I, th- I think that's what's great about that. Well, thank you, my friend. And we've got a number of ideas for you to come back on. So yeah, you'll be you'll be hearing Antonio many times in the future. So yeah, for me, you can get hold of me at castingviewspod at gmail.com and at castingviews on Twitter. While you're listening to us, just subscribe to both mine and Antonio's. Give us a follow where you can and give us a rating. And I know there's a lot of podcasts from which you can choose. So I thank you for listening to Casting Views. If I want your opinion, I will give it to you. Come on, check what we've got, cause you need it. Don't make us get a spark and go.